so Alan, you've written a new book called Thrive, and you know I, I commented on it early on on a blog or something. I said it was sort of like a modern day think and grow rich for entrepreneurs with really practical ideas on being successful. So it's not a book so much on marketing or being a consultant, but just being successful. What, what was your idea in doing this? How, was this a book that was sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of percolating for a number of years? Well, that's a good word. You, you put me in kind of lofty company there, but uh, that's exactly right. I had written all these books on marketing, and you know, I've written more books on consulting than anyone in history. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, ever. Uh, you know, I've written, well, my, 40, my 41st through 44th books will come out in 2011, and uh, of all those books, about 35 or 6 have been on uh, consulting, and no one's written that many books. And so I was thinking that um, I write a lot about success in my consulting books and uh, for, for people in professional services, but I wanted to uh, distill out a lot of what I had learned about success in life, period, that had nothing to do with what kind of profession you were in. And so that's, that's what we're Thrive about. And um, most people have been talking, oh, unconsciously and by default about surviving, especially during the recession. And I thought that uh, that's just death. You have to talk about thriving. And the subtitle of the book is Stop Wishing Your Life Away, because so many people say, oh, I wish I would have said this, I wish I would have done that. Now, if you listen to my father-in-law, God bless him, when he was alive, he would have owned every important piece of property in the world. <laughs> yeah. oh, I wish I'd bought that, right? I wish I'd done this. That's exactly right. I had a chance to buy that. I wish I would have bought that. <laughs> you have three chapters at the beginning of the book that are all about wishing your life away, some aspect of that. And I think it's worthwhile to get into that in a bit more depth. You know, what do you see people doing in their lives with wishing? I mean, I, I agree with you 110%, if that's possible, but wishing is really, really a problem. Well, it's, a, it's an excuse, and it's procrastination, and, right. and it's, a, it's a substitute for action. So the reason people wish they did something is because they didn't do it. And the reason they didn't do it is they had fear. Uh, and the fear was of failure, or the fear was of... Um, being seen as an imposter, or the fear was of uh, not living up to someone's expectation, or the fear was of success. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of people who fear both failure and success, and I can't help those people. So people say, I wish I would have done this, wish I would have done that, and there are variations. You know, Robert, people will say, you know what I should have said? I should have told them this. I should have said to her that. And the problem is, this stuff festers. And I found that when people regret what they didn't do, or they hold something against another person, whom they felt justifiably or unjustifiably did them a wrong, you are enslaved to that person or you are enslaved to that situation. You have to get rid of that stuff. So was there a time in your life where you had a transformation or shift? I mean, everybody's experienced wishing, no matter who they are. I can't remember when it was for me, but it was sort of like one day I realized I just had to make it happen and stop wishing. Do you remember that for you? They say that anybody who's really successful has had you know, something like four transcendental moments in their lives. And, uh, you know, the one that comes closest to this is when I was an exchange student as a junior in high school. I went to an inner-city high school. Uh, We never had an exchange student program. And one year, uh, just by happy circumstance, a reporter from a local newspaper arranged for a kid from Finland to come over and spend half of uh, a year, one semester, in each of the two public high schools in Union City, New Jersey, most densely populated city in the country. And um, he did that, and then uh, the city sent one kid from each high school back with him. And since nobody could speak Finnish, the idea was to make was to, to go back over the summer. Uh, and so uh, there was a competition, and it was the old-style competition. It was the, um, 
captain of the football team, the president of the uh, class, the um, uh, editor of the yearbook, and the president of the student council and editor of the newspaper. And both of those last two jobs happened to be mine. So mm. they were arbitrarily picked by the principal, those, those positions. And we had to make a presentation to 17 faculty members of committee. And, uh, of course, I was on my feet speaking, so I won 16 to 1. And I went on the old Queen Mary, the original Queen Mary to Europe. You, you, what do you mean you won 16 to 1? There were 17 votes. I won 16 to 1. <laughs> wow. And the one vote against me was from the homeroom teacher, one of the other kids, who told me he thought he had to be loyal and then gave me five bucks to take on the trip, you know, which was pretty big in 1963. <laughs> and so uh, two of us went, one from each high school, and we returned with the kid from Finland, and we sailed on the old Queen Mary. And the, the other kid, uh, we didn't, you know, he was sort of a blob, but me and the kid from Finland got along great, and uh, Esco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today, Esco is the Finnish ambassador to France. Really? Yeah. And so Esco and I would sneak up from the lower classes on the Queen Mary and stick our head in the first class and get thrown out repeatedly. But we said, someday. And when I got to Europe, we went through, <laughs> um, we went through Europe. Uh, we went through nine countries, wound up in Finland. Uh, we took the, the boat train, the steamer, across the English Channel and froze because we had the cheapest tickets imaginable. We had to stay on the deck. The crew kept throwing us out of cabins, throwing us out of stairwells. We just froze. Took a long train up to Paris. Long story short, though, is I saw the world in color uh, instead of black and white. And um, yeah, yeah, up front, in uh, you were there. Well, I was there. I mean, I was in Berlin when the when the uh, U.S. tanks and the Soviet tanks were 30 yards apart with their muzzles loaded. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I got to see Europe. Uh, and uh, Esco and I still correspond on occasion. And uh, last year, about a year ago, my wife and I took the new Queen Mary, the Queen Mary II, and we had the largest suite anywhere on the seas. And Esco and I had always said, someday we're going to do this right. And, you know, we had a 2,500 square feet, a square foot, um, bi-level suite, uh, none, none like it anywhere else. So That's bigger than my house, Alan. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> For a that, few days, right? We had a butler, you know. <laughs> and uh, every time I had a, every other day you dress, and every time I put on my tuxedo, I'd call the butler to make my bow tie, and my wife would have a fit. And I'd say a little to the right, a little to the left. But uh, this is what happened in 1963, and uh, it taught me there was a huge world out there. Uh, And that's when I realized, uh, Robert, that uh, we were not meant to just survive, which I did on the streets of Union City, New Jersey, running from large kids and and meaner kids and everything else. Uh, But we were meant to thrive. We were meant to drink it all in, and I resolved that um, what could stop me? Yeah, so at at that point, uh, you were only how old when you took this trip? I was 17. I was in the, wow. the, the luck was I was in my junior year, so I'd, we'd go over the summer and I'd be back in my senior year, and they, they would only take juniors uh, as as uh, candidates. So it was it was sheer luck. But on the other hand, you can make a point that there are no coincidences. Yeah, you know something else might have happened, but wow, what an opportunity! And so then you went on to university and jobs, and ultimately started your uh, uh, your business. I've heard the story of that. Um, you know you're. As you know, you're a very successful person. You're happy to be a successful person. You make great money. You've helped thousands of people. You've written over 40 books, et cetera. Have you, have you gone back and sort of looked at, well, here are my laws of success? You know, again, I'm sort of thinking of uh, Napoleon Hill here. Yeah, I have. So law number one for you. Well, law number one is, uh, and I, I can tell you this because uh, I've been asked it so often since I do – mentor and coach people globally, and I'm asked this all the time, uh, law number one is intellectual firepower. Uh, when I went through undergraduate school at Rutgers, I read every word on every page in every book. 
because that's what I thought I was there for. I, I thought that's what I was paying for and taking out government loans for so I could learn. And I watched these people around me use cliff notes and cheat and uh, try to get through on a minimal basis. And they had the complete wrong idea. They thought the idea was to try to get through as easily as they could and get a diploma when I realized I didn't really give a rap about the diploma so much as the learning that was available. And as usual, you know, other people were confused about input versus output. So the first <laughs> thing is intellectual firepower. And uh, the close behind, the close second place, is high self-esteem. Uh, you have to understand your own self-worth. And, you know, if, if you take, uh, uh, I do a, a lot of self-esteem workshops and things like that, and I often started by pulling out a $100 bill and asking people what it's worth, and then I crumple it up and I throw it on the floor, and I say, what's it worth now? They say, well, it's still worth 100 bucks." And I said, that's right. So no matter what happens to you, no matter how you get beat up, no matter the defeats and the setbacks and everything else, you're still worth what you're worth. And so you better arrive at that. So intellectual firepower, which includes a strong sense of humor, coupled by high self-esteem. And then thirdly, you need a loving support network. I've been fortunate. I've been married for 42 years and mm. uh, to my high school sweetheart. You know, she met me uh, in my junior year when I was going off to Europe. And, uh, and not everybody's that fortunate, but it um, doesn't matter. Uh, you need to find whatever works for you. And, uh, but what had better work for you is some kind of support work network where you can share love, where you have support, where someone can commiserate when you're down, rejoice with you when you're up, and tell you on occasion, knock off the crap and get to work. <laughs> yeah, that really does make a difference. It does. But, you know, Alan, a lot of people could say, well, that's nice for you, Alan. You're a really smart person to begin with. You, you were born with uh, some intellectual gifts. Therefore, you produce great results, and that made you feel good about yourself, so you have high self-esteem. And what do you, you know, I'm sure people have said that, or at least thought that. What do you say to people like that? I because, tell them to you knock know, it off. You tell them to knock it off. off. Oh, I don't want to hear it. Listen to me. Um, I, you know, let me tell you a couple of things. The first is, you know, there's this big debate, you know, is for as long as I've been in consulting and everything else, there's, there's been a debate, a leader's born or made. Yeah. It's not a debate. There's only one answer to it. Leaders are made. Leaders aren't born, they're made. Yeah. And, and you learn things and you adapt things and you grow and you experience and so forth. And uh, you make yourself. You make who you are. Now, uh, is there DNA flowing and coursing through your veins? Yeah. Is there a, a nurturing and heredity aspect to who you are? Yeah. But the most important thing is what you find in the environment and how you make use of it. I did my doctoral dissertation using uh, Marie Midland Bank, Merck, and Hewlett-Packard, my research, to prove that uh, behavioral disposition will determine innovation. And so if you look to hire people with certain traits like creativity and assertiveness, you'll get more innovation. And do you know what, Robert? I proved the exact opposite. And the point was that people were innovative despite their behavioral set based on the environment in which they were placed. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, is my learning from that doctoral dissertation is that people can put themselves in environments and, in fact, create environments in which they will be successful. So please don't tell me that I was, you know, I'm gifted. I, was, I came from a family that was poor. Uh, we played on the streets with, with holes in our sneakers. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, I read every word and every page and every book. I did the assignments. I risked things. I was never afraid to try to learn. I am not afraid of failure. You know, I've often said that one of the keys to success is simply doing your homework, which is what you're talking about here. You you did the work. You took the time. You put in the effort, uh, the blood, sweat, and tears, et cetera. And the same thing applies today. I mean, I work about a 20-hour week, and I get more done in 20 hours than most people do in 60. And the yeah. reason is <laughs> I don't sit around triple-guessing myself. 
I sit down and I do the work. So somebody says, well, it takes me two days to write an article. I say, well, it, it takes me 45 minutes to write an article. Am I that much smarter than you are? And so, you know, after we get it down, now they're writing an article in two hours. And they said, I'm still not doing it in 45 minutes. I said, yeah, but two hours is a lot better than two weeks. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it's not two weeks. Sometimes it's six months, for God's sake. That's right. So It's I, like for over, ever and ever and ever trying to get it perfect, you know, et cetera. I'm writing more books right now than most people are reading. So, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We're not going to catch up with you, Alan, but... My, my web guy says I'm providing so much content, it's, it's content, it's text. His technical team can't put it up fast enough. But I said to him, that's your problem. You know, some people have asked me, I've, I've been doing an easing every week for 15 years, which, you know, is better than most people. It's not 40 books, but it's something. And people say, well, how do you do that, Robert? And I say, it's very simple. I schedule it for Monday. You know, so it gets written. And as if there was some big, deep, dark secret to it, it's just uh, it's just doing it. Now I'm blogging every single day. Well, you know, you're prolific, too. I mean, you've yeah. created this marketing empire, and you communicate with people in a variety of different ways. I tell people, you know, if you're going to blog, you have to be there at least three times a week. Sure. You know, like you, I mean, I do it multimedia. I do it in print. I do cartoons. I do it in audio. I do it video. Uh, but, you know, what the heck? If you're going to do it, do it so you stand out in the crowd, right? Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question people ask me. Well, where do your ideas come from, Robert? How, you know, I could ask you. I mean, all those books, where in hell do all those ideas come from? You know, it's amazing to me that people struggle literally sometimes for months in writing an article. I know the information is inside there. I know they've got hundreds of client problems they've solved, for instance, that are a great basis for writing stuff and various insights and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, how do you answer that question? Where do the ideas come from? I actually uh, run exercises about this with people because it's come up so often. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I look outside here. You know, I'm sitting right now with my feet up on my credenza in my den, and I'm looking out at, at our backyard, and um, we live on six acres, and I've got all these bird feeders out here, and I see the squirrels on the bird feeders. And what occurs to me is that most people are trying to keep the squirrels, the squirrels off their bird feeders. And they're going to great lengths to do this. And I've never met one soul, not one human being who's ever been successful keeping birds off bird feeders. Uh, and what strikes me is, why are they bird feeders? You know, why aren't they squirrel feeders? <laughs> and I've got so many out there that the squirrels have their food and the birds have their food. I mean, neither one can possibly eat it all. And, but I'm thinking... It's kind of fun to look at squirrels, too. It is. And, I mean, there are animals out there just like birds are. Why don't you feed both of them and stop getting in such an uproar that, that one is stealing from the other? It's ludicrous. And, and that's where my ideas come from. Now, I transfer that, you know, to a client basis. And I say, well, when you're looking at, uh, you, you can't walk into a client and say immediately, well, you know, the, this guy who's asked me to come in, uh, is, is, he's the problem. I can see that right now. Well, first of all, you're regarding him as a squirrel. <laughs> Secondly, uh, if he's smart enough to ask you to come in, how come he's also stupid enough to be the cause of the problem? It doesn't make any sense. So I, I'm constantly looking around me for examples, and I'm transferring them uh, to, to actual work. I'll give you one more quick example. Now, Margaret Wheatley wrote a book called a Leadership of the New Science, and in there she makes an interesting um, commentary. She says that uh, consciousness, she says, is a factor of processing information. So a dog has a higher level of consciousness than a snail because a dog processes more information than a snail. We know this. Sure. Yeah, so I started thinking about that, and I realized that a lot of people 
process information at different speeds and at different amounts, and that people have a different level of consciousness. And I had an epiphany. And I realized that the people I'm dealing with, and my clients, with my uh, mentorees, people I coach, and so on, they're dealing at different levels of consciousness. And, and one of my goals, therefore, has to be to open up everyone's consciousness, to get them to process enough information, to get them to approximately the same place where they can start to hear things and see things and appreciate things that everybody else is. And that's been a revelation. So that's the kind of thing you can take from the world around you and apply it to your work. Alan, how do you, how do you start a book? I start a book with a premise. Yeah. And so the premise might, for example, a million-dollar speaking. I mean, well, if I can do million-dollar consulting, I can do million-dollar speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to write one more comprehensive book. You know, million-dollar consulting is in the fourth edition, been on the shelves for 20 years. I said, let me write one more, and Wiley was interested, so uh, I wrote the Consulting Bible, which will come out in another month. And so I start with a premise, and then the next thing I do is I create the chapters, just chapter headings. Uh-huh. After that, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> so it's sort of fill in the blanks, right? Yeah, each chat. Well, yep. I mean, here's how I write. Uh, you need about 220 pages or so for a commercially published book. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I do some self-publishing on some unique things, but I, I, otherwise I commercially publish basically with McGraw Hill and Wiley and occasionally with someone else. And if you need 220 pages, I, I, 10 chapters would mean about 220 uh, pages a chapter because the other 20 pages is, you know, front material and back material. 20 pages a chapter, if you have four or five subheadings, you have either four or five pages in each subheading. And boom, there's your chapter. So you sit down and you write one or two subheadings at each sitting. You know, I, I, a publisher wants a book in six months. I promise it in four. I usually write it in two or three. Wow. Uh, do you do much editing? Never. I never edit anything, ever, never. Does your, do you have an editor that cleans things up? No. Uh, we um, could only wish it was so easy for most of us, Alan. <laughs> I write from my head to the screen. I, I use a spell check. Yeah. But I never go back and reread a paragraph and change it. And that's what, see, it, it, life is about success, not perfection. Mm-hmm. When people self-edit and self-censure, which is, you know, Thrive talks about this, you kill yourself. Because the last 20% you invest in perfection is dysfunctional. If it's a speech, the audience never appreciates the last 20%. If it's a book, they don't appreciate the last 20%. Uh, no matter what it is, 80% is good enough. Now, I'm not saying 80% is good enough if you make an airplane, but they have four redundant systems on them. And so when you're w- working on something like this, you don't self-censor. Now, the publisher will have a developmental editor, and the developmental editor will get back to me and say, uh, this chapter is somewhat unclear. Can you straighten that out? Or you've repeated the story twice, or... Could we use more of a description here? And sometimes I'll go with their recommendations, and sometimes I won't. And then they have proofing editors who do nothing but clean up, you know, any any grammatical errors I've made and things like that. But, you know, it's a very, very streamlined uh, approach, and you, you shouldn't make it any more complicated than that. How long did it take you to write $10 million consulting? Uh, probably um, about five months. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, four to five months. And that book was originally Confessions of a Consultant. Mm. Uh, and, um, and then got rejected 15 times. Uh, my, <laughs> my agent called me. I had one of the first car phones in New England, and he, he called me on my car phone. He said, I'm at McGraw Hill. And I said, McGraw Hill, holy God, they like the book. He said, no, they hate it. I said, Jeff, this is an expensive call. Why are you calling me? <laughs> he said, because they want to know if you can write a book about how you made a million dollars as a solo consultant. I said, I can do that. He said, hold on. I, I heard him put his hand over the mouthpiece. And a minute later, he came back, and he said, uh, I'll make the dealer interested. And I wrote the book, and then um, I was in the editor's office in New York about a month before production, and she said, 
the book's about to go into production. We can't call it Confessions of a Consultant. I said, uh, yeah, I guess not. I said, I'll, I'll think about it. She says, you're not leaving this office until you give me a name. And I said, I've got an appointment. She says, sit still and give me a name of the book. And I said to her, look, Betsy, it's, what can I tell you? It's about million-dollar consulting. And she said, there's the name of the book. And sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. It turned out to be one of the most powerful brands in the professional services world. Yeah, and you know, I remember reading it almost 20 years ago, a little less, I think, and uh, it was a revelation to me. If you, if anyone listening to this call, just a little commercial aside here, Alan, that hasn't read this book, you're crazy. Um, I'm still using ideas from it today. You know, my proposal process, which is outrageously successful, comes from that book. The proposals is the big thing for me, and um, anyway. I just, so, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I just wrote, uh, I'm in the middle of writing Million Dollar Proposals. It's come out this year. Ah, Million Dollar Proposals. Yeah, and Alan just wrote, I, I've got it and haven't finished it yet, Million Dollar Coaching, which, uh, you know, more and more and more people are doing coaching. Yeah. So I think that's a great title if you're a coach, and a lot of people in this uh, in this program are. Okay, so where to go from here? I want to talk a little bit about goals and vision. You know, some people uh, take this very methodically. Some people, it's just, pal, there's an idea and they run with it. What do you do? Do you flesh out your goals? Do you think about them a lot? Do you dream about them a lot? Do you, or do things just, you know, sort of pop in? I know you you move a lot faster than the average person, Alan. <laughs> you really do. Well, you know, I'm not carrying a lot of weight around. I'm not carrying guilt. I'm not carrying arbitrary uh, obligations. I'm not carrying mm. goals. I mean, my feeling is that, uh, you know, I, I, I want to lead a productive life. I want to contribute to people. I want to contribute to the world around me. Uh, I want to make sure that my family is safe and happy. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've never said to myself, you know, as much money as I make, I've never said to myself, I want to make X. Uh, I have a phrase, T-I-A-A-B-B, there is always a bigger boat. And I, I, I never want, need the biggest and the best. I mean, I drive exotic cars, we go on great vacations, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I don't need to have uh, the most expensive car or the largest house, you know, or seven cars, uh, I, and I'm not tripped up over what somebody else has, but I know what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And um, I also know that I have to keep reinventing myself, which is why goals are dangerous, by the way. And so... Uh, well, I, you, become, you become sort of the victim of your goal or the effect of your goal if you're not careful. That's right. what you're talking about? Yes, that's right. And it's like it's it's in stone, I have to do it. No, you don't. You can change a goal, but... And that's why these bucket lists are so stupid. Yeah. Because you create this thing. So before I die, I want to do 27 things. Well, yeah. you know, if you don't do one or two or 20, you get all, oh, I'm a bit of failure. For God's sakes, you know, chill out. Uh, <laughs> it, be opportunistic. You know, if you see something that's attractive, do it, but don't do something just because it's, it, you check something off a stupid list. So you've got to be enjoying yourself, and yeah. uh, you've got to rejoice. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about some of the, uh, you know, we, maybe this is another book for you, Alan. Uh, you know, the dumb things people do that uh, sabotage their success. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you write that, I want ten percent commission. All right, it's a deal. Uh, so, you know, I, I work a lot with independent professionals, self-employed professionals, consultants, coaches, trainers, people that are, you know, one-person businesses. And um, the stuff that they do or don't do is is kind of astounding to me sometimes. Uh, But I'd I'd sort of like to hear your take on it. So one is, you know, they wish their life away. That's kind of a given. 
What other things do you see and what kind of insight can you give into that? And I know this could be a, a very long list, but I'm sure you have some things at the top of your head. What happens, I think, is that uh, they feel like imposters. Hmm. And consequently, they don't... Uh, see, Robert, there's a huge mindset difference between saying, um, I have huge value, and it would be remiss of me if I didn't offer it to as many people as possible, and, gee, I wonder if I'm bothering them. And if you feel you have huge value, you're never bothering anyone. You're never trying to make a sale. You're never imposing. But if you don't feel you have huge, huge value and you're confident about it, then you, you always feel like you're interrupting, you're imposing, and there's a danger, or it's adversarial. And so mm -hmm. I think they make that mistake. Another mistake they make is they look at price instead of value. And uh, instead of charging what they're really worth because of the value they, they drive, the value they provide, uh, they're always worried about trying to compete on cost. You can never compete on cost. There's always going to be somebody bigger who can commoditize things and make it cheaper. So that's not the point. The other thing I'd mention is that they don't take a holistic view of life. They seem to compartmentalize their lives. This is work. This is play. We take three vacations a year. Uh, I can't do this on a Wednesday afternoon because I should be working the telephone. Oh, I can't do a proposal on a Saturday. That would be a violation of life balance. You know, all that's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, uh, interesting. You know, I I um I buy a lot of um a lot of music, a lot of jazz. I'm a jazz fan. I'm a rather fanatic jazz fan. I have a lot. And um but I buy it, I play it in my office and I think as part of my business. I mean, that's kind of silly, but it's a bit what you're talking about. Everything is part of your life, your business. It all sort of merges together, right? Yes, and if you make it synergistic, yeah. uh you actually it, it, each each aspect helps the other. So if, you, if you're moved, if you're in the spirit to write a proposal on a Saturday, mm -hmm. write it, it'll probably be great. On the other hand, if your daughter has a dance recital, you know, your son's playing ball at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday, go see it. You're not going to have another opportunity. When people tell me I don't have time, what they're really saying is I choose not to. Because mm. time is not a resource. It's a matter of priorities, you know. Time is never a resource. It's 24 hours every day. We all know that. And so if you tell me I, I wish I had time but I can't see my son play soccer, what you're saying is that you, you think you have more important things to do. Well, isn't this a kind of a smokescreen for other stuff, though? I mean, everyone will buy into it, as I find, you know? Uh, all our excuses, all our reasons. So I don't have time. It's a lack of priorities, but it also means, well, I'm scared to make the call. I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. It's one that everyone will buy into. Oh, yeah, things are so busy. It's crazy. I know you don't have time. I think it's nonsense, but... Well, it is. I mean, uh, and we have... The whole point of Thrive, and, and I think one of the responses to your question is we have to take responsibility and accountability for our lives. Mm -hmm. And we have, we have more control over our faith than we think, but we flush, it, we flush most of it away, uh, either deliberately or, or accidentally. And, and we don't think we have as much control as we do. How about, um, how about just self-management? You know, I notice people, I, you know, I use the term a lot, uh, randomness. People are kind of in random patterns. That is, they don't really know where they're going. They, you know, sort of you get up and run off in 15 different directions. You don't really have a marketing plan or strategy. Um, how, do you, how do you plan your, your month, your week, your day? Do you have any particular methodologies? I use a file effects. I don't believe you can plan anything on an electronic gizmo. And I am, an, I am very electronically oriented. I mean, I've got a huge Mac desktop here. I've got the latest Mac 
uh, laptop, which just came out a week or two ago, which is super fast. I've got an iPad. I've got an iPhone. I tell you all that. However, my entire future is planned in the file packs on my desk here. I can see a year at a glance. I can see a month at a glance. I can see a week at a glance. I know it's in each day, and I simply work backwards from things I have to provide and produce. You cannot see that juxtaposition on an electronic device. And so you need a physical planner, and you plan out your day. I, I have pads uh, wherever I am. There's a pad on my night table. There's, there's pads in the kitchen. There's pads wherever I happen to be. So if I have a good idea or I think of something, I can jot it down. Uh, in my car, I have both pads and recorders in case I want to, you know, I'm driving, I can't write. So uh, you need to be able to organize yourself. I'm doing something in May uh, called the time of your life, and I'm teaching people during that day in Vegas how you, how you organize your year, your month, your week, and your day because it's a chronic shortcoming of people. You know, I think it's interesting that you say not on an electronic device. I, I agree the same. I could never make it work on a computer. So I, I don't use a file of facts. I use a day-at-a-glance kind of thing, week-at-a-glance. Right. I have another binder that I've created. You know, here's all my weekly priorities. I have major lists for various different projects. I'm always sort of shifting things and, and bringing it down to the day. Um, but it's funny. I think... Uh, I think people feel, well, I've got this iPhone. I can put all my appointments on it. You know, it's funny. When I go to set an appointment, it takes me five seconds because it's right in front of me. It takes them two minutes to find it in their in their program. Well, of course. It's, it's simple to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, I can't tell you how many times I've been with three or four people, and we'll say, okay, let's talk again on the 14th. Or what date is good for you? What time is good? Right. And I say, I can do the 14th at 10. And they're, hit, they're clacking away like berserk woodpeckers uh, <laughs> trying to come up with something. Exactly. And, and then somebody says to me, oh, I can do 11 on the uh, 14th. And then three minutes later, he says, oh, wait a minute. That's 2012. I have the wrong year. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, but we seem to have to be mobile and on the go and getting messages every second and that, that, uh But I really wonder if uh, it feels that people are not necessarily moving towards productive activity every day, knocking big things off their list. They've just got a lot of stuff happening. Or they're looking at a list of 100 items. How my, can you my, manage that? My policy is move three things forward a mile, not 100 things forward an inch. And so every day you have two or three probably top priorities. Right. Do something substantial on them, then take care of some small stuff, you know, and that's both personal and professional. You know, when I get off the phone with you, it's going to be around 4 o'clock Eastern time. I'm going to head out to the garage and uh, work on a model I've been uh, working on for the last two weeks. Uh, and, and, you know, and my wife's making corned beef cabbage because uh, it's, it's uh, St. Patrick's Day today. And then, you know, I'll have dinner and then I'll uh, make sure I watch American Idol tonight. So, I mean... <laughs> That's the way it goes. You know, everything fits. And, uh, and Nietzsche said that um, a day has 100 pockets if you but know what to put into them. Yeah. People aren't taking advantage of the time available and uh, the potential to organize themselves around it. And they, they allow themselves too many interruptions, mm -hmm. far too many interruptions. I talk about this in Thrive. But, for example, my phone is always, almost always forwarded. Now, my service guarantee is I'll return calls within 90 minutes during Eastern business hours. And... People are aghast at that. They think it's wonderful. But in return, um, I, I, if I'm sitting here at the computer writing something or figuring out something, the phone's not going to ring and bother me, and I have to pick it up. I've never had any computer where I've allowed it to tell me I have email. You know, it's, it's none of the computer's business. Just sit there and do your job. Uh, when somebody sends me one of these meeting alerts, Robert, you know, you have a meeting in two days, you have a meeting in one hour, you have me, I tell them I will never speak to them again if they don't take that off my machine. <laughs> 
yeah. All of a sudden, it starts to dominate your life. Get us uh, away from you. We're not going to talk. And let's talk a little bit more about fears. Because, you know, fear is the killer. Uh, the imposter syndrome, I'm afraid I'll be rejected. Uh, you know, people won't like what I have. Or people, um, it'll turn out I'm not as good as people think I am, which is a big problem. Or I'll, you know, I'll be successful, and then what will they ask of me, for God's sake? Right. I mean, it seems there always is some some kind of fear that prevents people from taking the next step. And, um, you know, Alan, my guess is I had a bigger issue about this than you did. I don't know. Maybe you had huge and refu- I, I, ridiculous number of fears. Ridiculous. I mean, it took me a long time to get going and finally understand what it was and, and work through them and conquer them. And, you know, now I feel relatively fearless. I mean, it took a long time for me to do it. But um, nevertheless, <laughs> now that I've said that, what's, what was your strategy? Or, or, or what are some of the fears that you faced earlier in your life that you, you know, what was the shift that made you get past them? I was a frightened little kid, you know. I mean, I, I was running from uh, from the bullies, and, uh, right. and uh, you know, when I was in school, God, I mean, there was no such thing as bullying. Everybody just killed you. <laughs> bullying, please, you know, give me a break. People would say, give me a quarter, or I'm going to break into your locker and steal your stuff, you know, and you found a quarter to give them. You stole someone else's quarter. I mean, I mean, come on, that was school back then. So... Uh, so I was a, I was a scared little kid, and yeah. uh, I remember when I first got into the training business, when I was uh, recruited out of Prudential, and I uh, went into the training business in, with a firm in Princeton. Um, <laughs> the first time I stood up in front of a group of you know adult business people, I was scared out of my mind, you know. And after I did that two or three times, I realized those people. Now I was you know 26 years old. Everybody knew was older than I was, but those people were there to learn. They weren't there to critique me. They they didn't want to see me go down in flames. I mean, no healthy person, I mean, aside from a few borderline personality disorders, no healthy person wants to go hear someone speak and say, oh, I had a great time this morning. The guy was awful. No. And so consequently, I learned that I was valuable to these people, and I better get good at it, and I did. And I became, you know, uh, I'm in the Speaker's Hall of Fame right now. So uh, that's how I overcame fears. I, I understood that I could be of value to people, and then that the worst thing that can happen is that they throw you out, and you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, walk down the street, and you find something else to do. And, I, you know, my, my common uh, response is I've been thrown out of better rooms than this one. But you know, nothing you or I do, Robert, is going to affect the course of Western civilization. But rejection, Alan, but rejection. I mean... Uh, rejection is a factor of self-esteem, though. What was that? Rejection is a factor of self-esteem. Tell me more. Well, when I, if I tell you that, you and I aren't going to change the course of Western civilization. No. The worst thing that happens is you get thrown out. Well, the only thing that gets bruised is your ego, and the ego is the part of the body that's most easily recoverable, like within a nanosecond. But if you're still afraid of those things, if you're still afraid that, oh, my God, what if they don't like me? What if I'm not good? That's a real self-esteem issue, and there's, you know, Bandura's written tons on this stuff, but there's a difference between efficacy and self-esteem. Efficacy is the ability to do something well. Self-esteem is a feeling of self-worth no matter how well you do something. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if you have both in a given endeavor then you're a very healthy individual. You know, I'd like to think I have both in the consulting world. Uh, if you look at, however, playing musical instruments, I can't play, I have no efficacy to play a music instrument. I can't play, I can barely play the radio. But I still have, I still have high self-esteem. I think well of myself. Now, if you have high self-esteem and no competency at all, you know, you're an empty suit. But the fact is mm. that people um, don't allow themselves to build their esteem where they're not afraid uh, to fail. 
And that's because they don't build the proper skills along the way. And my, my feeling is the more skills you develop and use successfully, the more self-esteem you're going to have. And I regard mm-hmm. self-esteem as sort of a verb on the way to self-confidence, which is a noun, just in my lexicon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and the most important skill of all is language. If you can use language, you control discussion. Discussion controls relationships, and relationships control business. And so language is the primordial skill. It is the tool of our craft, and not enough people understand language. And when I hear somebody confuse, imply, and infer, which do not mean the same thing, mm-hmm. or prone and, uh, and supine, uh, I, I, it, it rankles me. It's like uh, nails on a blackboard, because uh, they haven't educated themselves to the point where they can really be effective uh, in social and business intercourse. So that begs the question, of course, is how does one improve one's language skills? It's pretty easy, actually. You improve your language skills through these methods. First, you read voraciously. You read fiction and nonfiction. And you understand uh, the kinds of words that are put together that make people effective. Mm-hmm. You understand metaphor. You understand analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you learn how to use these things to give color to your speech. The second thing you do is you do crossword puzzles and acrostic puzzles. That will increase your vocabulary hugely. And you don't just throw them down when you can't do something. You figure out how to finish them. If you have to, you look them up. I, I think you've hit my weakness, Alan. I never yeah. liked those. <laughs> Every time you see a word you don't know, yeah. you rip it out or you copy it and you look it up and you use it. Yeah. When, whenever I see a word I don't know, I am personally offended. Now, years ago... You're you know, personally I'm, offended. I'm personally offended. <laughs> Now, years ago, I used, to, I used to copy down, you know, a dozen words a week. Mm-hmm. Today, I might copy down one word every two months, and I'm a wider reader than ever before, but that's how my vocabulary has grown. And so you, you don't just pass over words you don't know or guess at them. Uh, and then the final thing you do is you enter into debate. Uh, you, you argue, you discuss uh, both electronically uh, and interpersonally so that you hone your skills, you hone your ability to use words. Never, ever abide by the advice that people give you to dumb down your speech mm. or dumb down your dress. This advice is given by people who are themselves so insecure, they want to drag everyone down to their own level of inferiority. Never dumb down. You know what? Successful people want to be around successful people. And you have to show that you're a success, and you do that in the way you dress and your demeanor and the kind of words you use. Well, makes sense. Don't you feel also that writing itself increases your capability to communicate? It does, as long as you don't write the same old thing all the time. Sure. <laughs> so if you're, if you're um, let's take your example from before. If you're posting, you know, three to five times a week, yeah. your posts should be diverse. You should be talking or writing on different topics, a different length. Yeah. And if you do that, you're right. Your vocabulary should improve and your writing should improve. Yeah, I, I, it, it seems to build a muscle, you know. Uh, I found that it, probably the biggest transformation in my business is when I started my easing. And, you know, by writing every single week, I found that then I was able to articulate much more effectively what it is I did, how I was different, who I worked with, the various techniques of marketing and selling. And before it was all just sort of jumbled around in my head. And so writing organized it. And, you know, in, in a way, you know, Alan, you're drawing on – um, 40 books that you've written. You know, you've written those, you've thought them through, they've been organized, and that becomes part of your, I don't I can't find the word, your lexicon or your, 
your your sort of mental storage library for well, all these ideas. Yeah, I mean that's my repository. But repository. The, the the fact is though, I've also read about five thousand books, and <laughs> and that's been uh, you know probably even more yeah impressive uh, in terms of being able to influence how I write, how I think, how I express myself. And so I'm I'm a just voracious in trying to take in other people's ideas and understand how they communicate them and why they have impact and so forth. Uh, how many hours do you read a day, typically? Oh, probably. Uh, are you including the newspaper and things like that, or just books? Or? Mm, everything. Probably um, 90 minutes. Just 90 minutes. That's all. Yeah, I, pro- I read the newspapers every day. I read the magazines that come in that I that I follow, mm-hmm. and then uh, I probably and then I I usually read um, while I'm watching TV. Uh, I, I I finish great books while I watch football because there's so so much inaction between action and football, you know. So I read while I watch TV, and then I um, I probably I usually do a crossword puzzle before I go to bed, and that also helps me to sleep. <laughs> Brilliant. That's great. Yeah, at the end of Alan's book, by the way, he has a list of uh, recommended books, mostly, um, well, fiction and nonfiction, but no business books, which I think is interesting. Tell me about that. Most business books are awful. Yes, they're just dreadful. Uh, and the exce- you can count the exceptions. I mean, Peter Drucker read anything he ever wrote. Uh, he invented strategy. He's a just a terrific thinker. He was, uh, you know, he was writing into his nineties, and uh, he's a great loss and a fascinating guy. And so there are some books like that. John Gardner on leadership, you know, is another one I would recommend without thinking twice about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, most business books uh, are about fads. They're about um, uh, illusory trends. And they're written by people who don't deserve to be writing the book. Moreover, when you read some of these business biographies, you have to take into account that they can virtually never help you because they're just talking about that individual who did that thing at that particular time in those circumstances. And there's very little to learn from it. You know, I mean, I, I read Iacocca's book about Ford, and while, you know, it was kind of interesting about what he did there, it, it, there's virtually nothing transferable. Uh, there was a book out called Execution by um, Larry Bossidy, who came out of GE, ran Allied Signal, and the, and the consultant, what's his name, Ram Sharon or something? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the two of them get together, for, but the book's just awful. You know, it's just dreadful. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't help you or anything. So most business books are written for the writer, not the reader. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit of a conundrum here, though, because it's like, well, writing a book is a great thing for your business, but the chances are uh, you're not going to put out a great business book. Well, think about it. Yeah. Uh, if you know why so many business books are bad, you can make an exception. I mean, people tell me I write the way I speak. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can always become an exception. Secondly, uh, always think of your audience uh, and who you're writing for and, and pretend you're having a conversation with those people mm. who are in your audience, and that will make your book lively. But uh, most of these big-time, um, you know, uh, business books, um, they're ephemeral. You know, it, it, six months later, they're gone. Now, occasionally, something like, you know, Malcolm Caldwell comes along and he writes, uh, what, Outliers or the Tipping Point or things like that. But, uh, you know, I don't really consider that a business book. Yeah, but they're very insightful. Yeah, they're, great they're, they're based on good research and interesting synthesis of ideas. You're right, and I, I like them. them. But, but yeah. that, to me, that's not a business book. Mm, a, yeah. You know, it's almost a sociological book. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, what is life mastery? I'm looking through your um Well, life mastery is when you don't need feedback from others to tell you how well you're doing. You have an internal governor that tells you that uh, 
you did well here, you didn't do so well there, uh, you can improve this, uh, you really can't improve that without a, you know, a ridiculous investment of time and energy. Uh, it's, it's fine the way it is. Uh, and that's what life mastery is. It's the ability to self-regulate. And uh, there are two types of feedback. You know, the solicited feedback, where I ask you because I respect you, what do you think about this? But then there's unsolicited feedback, which adds to the problem with self-esteem because it, it sends you around the curves like a ping-pong ball or, or like one of those pinballs in one of the machines. And uh, you just can't listen to unsolicited feedback because it's always for the sender. Hmm. Very interesting. Look, uh, these days, yeah, the, com- the economy seems to be in a meltdown. Unemployment is at an all-time high. Businesses, you, we hear one corruption thing after the other. Uh, you know, is there hope for American business? What the hell is going on, and what is your solution? I mean, I think about this a lot, and I thought, well, I should ask this of Alan, because he seems to have a better perspective than almost anybody on stuff like this. Well, there's, there's, And I, I'm concerned. I'm really worried about it. It's like, what the hell is happening? Well, and are we to, ever going get, to get back? Go I'll ahead. I'll try to help you. I'll try to buck you up. There's, there's huge prosperity and huge uh, promise ahead because everything you just said is wrong. Okay. Uh, well, for example, right well, except now, for the bottom ten percent. Well, hold on. Right now, yeah. Um, I mean, we're speaking here, just to be accurate, in uh, late March or mid March of uh, 2011. We're in the midst of a pretty sizable recovery. Uh, in fact, it's one of the greatest recoveries uh, of the last, you know, uh, half century. And now, i.e., businesses are being more profitable. Well, business is being more profitable. The stock market has undergone one of its most remarkable bounce backs mm-hmm. ever. Uh, and while there'll still be, you know, uh, hiccups ahead, and, and you can't predict things like Japanese tsunamis knocking out nuclear plants uh, or revolutions in Libya, uh, nonetheless, that will be discounted and overcome too. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, we're in the midst of a big recovery, and I would advise all your readers, uh, and I'm not accusing you this, uh, this of you, Robert, don't get me wrong, but, but don't hang out with economic pessimists. Mm. Uh, the fact is, Things are looking pretty good right now. The second thing you mentioned, I recall, was the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate has been far higher in the past. It was far higher in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's about 9%. But the fact is, the fact is that 5% of people unemployed don't want to work, and they're not going to work. Those mm-hmm. are hardcore unemployed, which means there's really only about 4% of the people who could be employed and want to be employed who aren't, which means that 96% of people who want to be employed are employed. Hmm. Now, you can also make a case, as some people do, that you have, you know, sort of the working poor, that a lot of people who are employed aren't employed in the jobs that they would prefer or that they had or are making enough money. Well, Where wages are being pushed down more than right. ever. But that's a problem in any, any evolving economy. And the fact is, mm-hmm. I said to you before, I'm always reinventing myself, you know. Uh, last year I made, um, uh, well, more than $2 million, let's put it that way. And 75% of that came from stuff that didn't exist three years before. Mm. We have to constantly reinvent ourselves, and people out there, in the, if you're just going to drive a bus all your life, uh, and I mean no disrespect to bus drivers, but you cannot expect, cannot expect uh, that your income is going to improve by 20% a year because there's <laughs> no increased skill there, and the jobs are increasing commodities, even becoming automated. And now I forget the third thing you said, but that was wrong too. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I asked, now let, me, let, me, let me tell you something else. Uh, in, I don't know where your members are. I mean, my, the members of my communities are global. And, uh, I do. Okay. In the United States, so I differentiate. In the United States, uh, we are uh, about a quarter of a century, right, 250 years or so, 
uh, into the greatest experiment uh, in uh, democracy and freedom and liberty ever launched. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're still living off the original document mm-hmm. is just astounding. It is. It's astounding. It is. Uh, and so uh, here we are, uh, uh, engaged in uh, two wars overseas, and, and whether or not we should be in them is a different point. I'm not making a political point here. Uh, here we are, having gone through razor-sharp uh, um, political um, presidential elections, where at the very last vote on the Supreme Court, there were no tanks in the street. You know, there, there was no militia called out. People accepted the rule of law. Uh, we're in a, a, a country where people uh, come here. I mean, our, our issue is keeping immigrants out, which I'm not, you know, I'm not making a political judgment either, but we were a country of immigrants. I, I was just at, in Ellis Island two weeks ago. And uh, people from the industrialized West and Asia and, and, and Latin America and all over the world want to come here because they can be uh, innovative and they can be rewarded on merit and so forth and so on. And so we have this wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, capability here. We're blessed by geography, but we're blessed by the foresight of these people who a quarter century ago said they pledged their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor, and, and, and they'd be hanged if they lost, and they knew that. And here we are. So... Uh, the, the future is bright, and you have to take context into consideration. Most people in school today and for the last 20 years have not learned geography and history. Mm-hmm. And geography and history are essential to frame and to place in context what's happening today. So historically, things are not as bad as they seem, and contextually, we are in a great place in the world. Now, can things get better? Yeah, but if, if you get up in the morning and say, woe is me, you've got a problem. If you get up in the morning and say, not perfect, but awfully good, you've got a good shot. Well, what I see a lot is people um, let the recession trigger them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, well, business isn't good. Therefore, you know, my business isn't going to be good. So I'll sort of hunker down and I won't... Uh, I do a lot of marketing because what's the use right now because people aren't hiring and, of course, why would they need a consultant, blah, blah, blah. So it's it's funny. We have all kinds of external conditions. It's all we have, right? It's uh, This is happening. It's good. It's bad. It's indifferent. But we let that shape our actions instead of taking the initiative to you know, it's like this, you know, the story of the shoes in Africa, the apocryphal story. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so, you know, great. There's no shoes. Uh, you know, send more. Every Nobody wears shoes. But uh, we don't think like that. It's more we think like the other guy. Oh, everyone's already wearing shoes. What's this, the use? But this is the issue, Robert, and the issue yeah. I raise in Thrive, and that is you talk about the external forces that yes. drive us to these. But the trouble is there's no countervailing internal force. And yes. if you are self-confident and if you have self-esteem, and if you are uh, positive and optimistic, and if you have skills and can use language, you have countervailing forces, and you know how to get through the worst, and you know how to rejoice in the best. And you're not just buffeted by what happens out there. And too many people are buffeted by the winds and tides of the ocean. They're like jellyfish with no propulsion. What you need to be is a large, mean fish with teeth and a tail that propels itself through the ocean. (laughs) And the intention to do that. You know, I just I just filled my biggest, most successful program ever. Got 22 people in it. It was 18 last year, and it was easier to fill. 70% of the people I talked to signed up, and it was like, hmm, what recession? Uh, there's a need out there for whatever service that you have, but you have to, 
you have to take the initiative and not wait for things to happen. And not make excuses. If you wake up making excuses that the economy is bad, the competition is tough, technology is passing you by, you're never going to get anywhere. Ever. Ever. But if you wake up and say, how can I take advantage of technology? Competition opens markets. I've got more talent and value than anyone else. You're going to have a very different kind of day. Very. Um, you know, we're sort of jumping all, all over the place, uh, depending on what you're saying. But um, I've noticed one of the biggest weaknesses of self-employed people is follow-up. You know, we wait for people to call us. We don't persist in any kind of way. Um, what have you noticed in that area, and what are some of your ideas in that? You know, I found, it, for instance, if someone can follow up, if they have no fear of follow-up, if they just make the call, uh, you know, I'd bet on them any day of the week as opposed to someone that has, you know, 27 degrees. Well, you're right, and it, it, I think it refers back to what you were saying earlier about discipline and about having some kind of planner. Uh, you, you have to plan to follow-up. You have to understand that follow-up is in the best interest of the other person with whom you're following, uh, and you have to be unafraid of the worst possible outcome, and the worst possible outcome here is simply no. What's <laughs> that? Yeah, you know the the other aspect you talked about the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, there seems to be this thing if well if I market myself, if I call people, if I you know do something somewhat unusual, whatever the heck it is, people will think I'm unprofessional. You know what I'm talking about? Well, this they'll think I'm uh, hypey. They'll think I'm, I don't know. And I couldn't be that because I'm a professional, so I have to be just so careful. Uh, that drives me crazy, but it's a real big issue for a lot of people. Well, I need to stop that. <laughs> you know this Bob Alan has spoken. You know the Bob Newhart routine where he says stop it? Uh, it's on YouTube. You know, he's a, he's a, uh -huh. a therapist. Yes. You know, a woman comes in, and he says, I have a different therapeutic approach. You know, I only charge you $5. It's five minutes. And uh, she says, well, you know, I've, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a small box. He says, stop it. <laughs> and she says, well, I have, he says, you have four minutes left. She says, well, I have relationship issues. He says, stop it. I won't tell you the rest of the thing. I won't go on. But the, the fact is, uh, you know, that you need to stop it. I mean, a lot of therapy is helpful, but a lot of therapy is just an excuse to keep talking about things you shouldn't be talking about and just stop it. And so if you, if you go through life afraid and timid, yeah. you might see, it, you know, whereas, you know, I feel if I'm different, I'm going to stand out. But you feel if you're different, you're going to be pointed at and mocked. Yeah, uh, ridiculed, uh, embarrassed. Yeah, you know, everyone will not do business with me anymore. Well, but it goes back to self-esteem. So yeah. you're afraid of being embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, so everybody stop it. Get over yourselves. Make the follow-up calls. <laughs> well, ask yourself, I mean, pragmatically, ask yourself what's the worst that can happen. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen yeah. is, is minor in the history of the world. It's, you know, it's nothing. Very minor. They don't return your call. Stop worrying about it. Um, how do you handle with unreturned calls or slowly returned calls? Well, if, if I don't get a return call from someone, yeah. uh, I will. my policy is three tries and a letter. Okay. And so I, I will – because, you know, the first time um, so the call might have – they might have lost a note. The call might not have gone through. They might have forgotten about it. And the second time, um, you know, it might be the same thing, but not three times. You know, once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, three times a pattern. And so after the third time, I write a letter, and I, say, I simply say very positively, I'm sorry we couldn't make contact. I did my best. 
Uh, but if you need me, here I am. Yeah. And that's it. And I move on. I don't worry about it. I take it as a personal rejection. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have much of a problem because I deal with peer, I deal with peers. I don't deal with low-level people. The people who are most likely not to return a call are human resource people, training people, learning and development people, people at the bottom of the organization, because that's one of the few um, straws they can grasp to prove that they're important, not returning a call. And so I, but I don't deal with those people. <laughs> Good. You know, we've had some interesting things with people in our group where uh, it didn't seem they were ever going to get back. And then a month later, they'd call and say, well, you've got the contract. Or, you know, let's continue the conversation. I think we often sort of fantasize that we've, um, you know, something awful has happened. And usually the case is people are just busy. We make up stuff and then we beat ourselves up about it instead of just realizing, well, you know, everyone's busy these days. What's new with that, for God's sake? Just keep at it. Right. Okay. But what other pieces of wisdom can you give us, Alan, uh, in this last piece? Um, you know, I'm I'm a self-employed professional. I want to be successful. I've I've taken I, I've taken all these these ideas. What else What else would you share with me that's going to increase my chances of success in business and life? I think that um, if you want to in- increase your chances of success. Uh, in no particular order, surround yourself with bright people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, never allow yourself to be king of the hill just for the ego of it. Uh, people mm-hmm. say you should never be the brightest one in your mastermind group. Well, somebody has to be, but mm-hmm. after a while you change mastermind groups. Mm-hmm. So uh, surround yourself with bright people. Uh, secondly, uh, take prudent risk. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid of failure. Uh, no risk, no reward. You know, William Penn said, no cross, no crown. Mm. Uh, so don't be afraid to take some prudent risks, uh, because without prudent risk, you, ne- you can never really be innovative or, or creative. Uh, thirdly, uh, understand that um, uh, life is about contributing, uh, and it's about reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about helping others and expecting to be helped. Uh, not in the exact same transaction, but it's reasonable to reach out for help when you need it. Mm-hmm. And it's reasonable to provide help even when people aren't expecting it. For example... Uh, every session I run, every workshop I run, there's always at least one person, sometimes more, in there on scholarship. And mm-hmm. I never give a – that is free. And I never give uh, these free seats to people who ask for them. Uh, but I, I identify people who I know could use them, and I make the offer. And so, you know, you want that kind of mutuality of help. And then finally, I'd say that um, uh, you know, dare to dream and, uh, and, and, and think big thoughts. You know, we're not here to stick our toe in the water. We're here to make waves. <laughs> yeah, and waves you have made, Alan, in uh, in many people's lives. So I I want to I want to thank you for taking the hour to do this. I got some great ideas, and I hope everyone listening really takes this to heart. We'll have a transcript of this. Listen to this a few times. Read it a few times. Uh, Alan is the kind of success we all want to be. Maybe we won't be as successful as Alan, but if we do, uh, just half as much will exceed our dreams uh, beyond our imaginings in most cases. So thank you, Alan. Oh, my pleasure, Robert. Thanks. It's always great talking to you. The time just flies by. <laughs> great. Okay, thank you. <laughs>